Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's Dead Pundit Society. Joining me today is founding editor and publisher of Jacobin Magazine, Baskar Sankara. He gets a lot of shit online, so we're going to face down the haters. We're going to talk about left social democracy in the 21st century, and we're going to lay down a diss track. Uh, he's Mace, and I am Biggie Smalls, or maybe the other way around. Who's to say? Uh, stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss it. Oh, yeah. God, I love that wind up, right? Kind of makes you feel like something's about to happen. And then they take it down, drop the beat, keep it mellow. All right, welcome everybody to this week's episode. As I've mentioned, I've got Baskar Sankara joining me here in just a few moments. He's the publisher of Jacobin Magazine. You all know who Baskar is. He needs no introduction. Uh, He has been at the center of several controversies online lately uh, over in the the, the land where folks never stop posting. Uh, The most recent one is uh, he's been facing down some of the liberal lanyard dicks at Vox and elsewhere. Uh, They've been quarreling over the definition of neoliberalism. And uh, Baskar and some other folks have been holding strong and criticizing the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party and revealing the real-life fractures that exist between socialism and these centrist technocratic assholes who have been screwing us over for so long. In addition to that, Baskar has been getting a lot of crap from the left as well. Um, He is sort of often slandered as this centrist, you know, social democrat who's not interested in challenging capitalism and as somebody who only wants to sort of try to go into the Democratic Party, which is, of course, destined to fail. Now, I know Baskar personally, and I can tell you that the man is incredibly sophisticated and and whether or not I agree with him, and we don't always agree, and that's okay. Uh, But whether or not I agree with him, I I know that the man has a much more sophisticated view on left-wing social democracy and how to transition towards a socialist future. So I wanted to bring him on so he could spell that out for you folks. And, And as I say in the interview, I mean, some folks have called him the great communicator of socialism for our generation. And that's very true. I mean, he's only in his late 20s. But he has a way with words. He can really break down complex topics into a regular everyday vernacular um he 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 avoids the kind of complex jargon that i myself am predisposed to so i really admire him for that anyway we'll get to that in just a few more moments uh this is the shortened version of my interview with baskar if you want to get the full hour and 45 minutes you're gonna have to check me out on patreon so that's www.patreon.com slash dead pundits and uh, you can join for five dollars a month or eight dollars a month. Uh, any you know any amount of money you can pitch in to help support the project financially would be much appreciated. You'll get the full hour and forty five minutes of this episode, 
There's bonus content from my Adolf Reed episode last week. It's a full two-hour uh, episode that is totally exclusive content with Adolf Reed that I did several months ago. I've got extended footage with Katie Halper on there, extended footage with Angela Nagel on there. So the Patreon, uh, the, the Dead Punnet Society Patreon is just a place to be. Uh, throw me a few bones a month and you're going to get full access to that. Uh, as, as a little gift, a uh, token of my appreciation. So check me out on patreon.com slash deadpundits. Find me on Twitter at deadpundits. Find me on Facebook. Like the page. I want to bring you a very quick little introduction. This is a sweaty little bastard by, who goes by the name of Jason Unruh. He wears a Chairman Mao suit on his YouTube channel. Uh, very quick uh, feel for the kind of hate the Jacobin magazine gets thrown its way every day. All right, enjoy. Jacobin magazine has always had a really liberal streak running right through it, and oftentimes it's been basically just the militant wing of the Democratic Party. But now they've gone to a very interesting new low. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me today on the line is Baskar Sankara. He's the founding editor and publisher of Jack of the Magazine, as well as the recently released uh, Catalyst Journal. It's a Marxist journal of theory and strategy, edited by Bob Brenner and Vivek Chibber. Baskar, how are you doing today? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Glad to have you on, man. You are at the center of some controversies with some dead pundits lately on the topic of neoliberalism and its uh, conceptual <laughs> and political utility. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. You, you really have kind of, um, you mentioned on social media that some of these dead pundits, you know, owe you like royalties or something by now because you've given them so much material. Uh, what's up with that? Wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not aware of any of these, uh, these controversies, man. I just, I just sit around. I, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I watch I watch the Knicks, uh, you know, 70, 70 games games a year, and I uh, I get I get abused on the internet. That's that's my you know day to day life. It's just you know <laughs> agony after agony after agony. You know, it's hard enough being a socialist in the the U.S. I had to couple being a being a Knicks fan too. But that's um, a double victim. We have intersection uh, intersection uh, intersectional oppression uh, that you're facing on the day yes, day. yeah, no, exactly, and and really, really, I I don't like when people try to try to uh foreground one or say one matter is the other one doesn't matter you know that kind yeah. of yeah I, I like to center all my oppressions nicks nicks fans uh matter too i think pretty pretty significantly yeah so tell us a little bit about uh, this controversy. The, the topic of neoliberalism has been front and center. Uh, a lot of uh, political commentators on the left have used it to try to distinguish uh, the kind of Bernie left and the social democratic left from the kind of, uh, you know, the more uh, technocratic centrists, uh, the Ezra Kleins of the world. And, and you've had some pretty impolite words for those types of folks over the past couple of years. Uh, so what, what's your take on, uh, on, this, on this debate? Yeah, so I mean, I think that um, that it served a very useful thing for for us to to say that you know there is a mass base for our politics out there, um, and that the Democratic Party leadership doesn't represent the aspirations of a lot of people who vote Democrat who just want one 
like the slightly less bad guys in power or, you know, in many cases actually harken back to the idea that, you know, there was this New Deal, you know, coalition, there was this coalition that pushed the Great Society and, and, and whatnot, and they wanted kind of the party of, of FDR and LBJ in that respect and not, and not um, you know, the party of Clinton and, and Obama. So I think for on the left, what we were trying to do is just, you know, obviously FDR and LBJ wouldn't be nearly um, enough and committed their own host of, 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 you know, of crimes. But for us, it was always about kind of drawing this distinction to try to say that, you know, we want a mass constituency for socialist politics, and we don't think that the Democratic Party actually has its own constituents. So um, that that are actively buying into this this agenda. So you know, Connor uh, Kilpatrick in his last piece brought up a very good point, which is that you know all these people saying that criticizing um, Hillary Clinton is the same as Hil- Hil- criticizing like it's like black people, black women who voted for her. Like right. yeah, that's you know as ridiculous as saying that uh, that the you know poor black people voting for the Republican Party in the eighteen nineties um, were you know really tied and wedded to you know. Uh, Andrew Carnegie's, you know, um, vision of, of America. Um, so, <laughs> right, right, right. so yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's essentially what we were, we were trying to do from the very beginning, you know, this is from 2011, we're kind of writing these kind of, um, things. And then, you know, obviously with the emergence of Bernie Sanders, you're seeing this kind of division that we sketched out actually coming to life. And you're seeing kind of this fissure between, the aspirations of people at the base of the Democratic Party mm-hmm. and its its leadership. And you're seeing this kind of tension. Um, and that's why I always thought it was ridiculous when people said, hey, you're supporting uh, Bernie Sanders, so you're just supporting the, the Democrats. No, of course, like, why, we're not. You know, obviously, um, the, the Bernie Sanders campaign did more to um, disunify, I think, in a very productive way, the Democratic Party and expose this kind of division between Clintonite liberalism and this kind of, you know, Bernie Krat um, answer. So for me, you know, that doesn't mean subsuming your politics into kind of Bernie Krat politics. It does mean that, you know, these people are, are very useful, um, you know, folks to be in coalition with us. Um, uh, I, I think that, you know, it's actually a potential mass base for, for, for our politics. 100%. So there you, you raise an interesting, uh, 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 an interesting observation. And so far as the centrist uh, liberals are, are, are hell-bent on associating, say, you know, poor women of working class women of color with the Clinton campaign, in the same way, you know, sort of using these broad brush concepts, it's, it's such a high level of abstraction to really miss the kind of conflictual nature uh, of politics that's sort of... Um, sort of contained within the Democratic Party. In the same way, kind of like the quote-unquote far left will associate, you know, the Bernie-crats with the same old Democratic project as though there were no uh, fractures or ruptures in that coalition. And so it seems like what you're advocating for is to look at the kind of particularities of the, of the various, of the composition rather, of these coalitions in a really serious way to see where we can put pressure on them to try to, uh, uh, you know, uh, widen those fractures uh, to push people in our direction. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, even my, my vision of politics, for example, is not an, an a change in how we actually build a, a labor-based, you know, uh, party that, that represents the interests of the working class is not the old idea of realignment. I don't believe that we could just 
take over the Democratic Party, slowly, put, slowly push it left. Uh, what I do believe is that we could create um, kind of an opposition um, um, around the Democratic Party, and there's going to be certain people that are going to take it inside the Democratic Party. You're not going to convince an R revolution type that it's futile to try to take over the California Democratic Party. You know, they're going to they're going to do their strategy, and I hope they succeed. Uh, based on my reading of history, I think they won't succeed, but. But I think there'll be these kind of currents, there'll be this this distinct opposition inside and outside the Democratic Party. Uh, then we'll reach a certain point in American history when, you know, I think the party systems will temporarily kind of fragment, right? The Republican Party might split into two. The Democratic Party it might split into two or three. And then over the course of a year or two, the parties will once again recompose into two major um, parties just by nature of being you know, a first-past-the-post system. And our goal then, I think, should be to have one of those parties be explicitly a labor-based, um, you know, party. Um, I then, you know, obviously have a strong militant, you know, anti-capitalist kind of core to it, or at the very least have an anti-capitalist um, open opposition within it. So people always just say this seems like a very tame and tepid kind of vision, but, you know, I think we're in the United States in, in 2017. We don't even have a semblance of a welfare state. We have, um, you know, historically since the dawn of, you know, the um, the industrial working class, since the dawn of capitalism, this is the very weakest the left uh, has been, give or take a decade. Um, so I think we're, we're we're starting, you know, from from scratch almost. Um, and that's kind of my my you know vision of the way a change like this will will go about. Um, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a just a, you know there's a historical precedent for very rapid uh, change in the in the party alignments. You saw that with the the rapid decline of the Whig Party. And if and if you know most of you out there are scratching your head and you're saying Whigs, well, exactly, <laughs> because uh, prior to you know I don't know I'm not, I'm not a historian on this. Uh, maybe we should drag in Matt Carp to explain this to, to myself and, and the people. But you know it's my understanding that the, the Whigs declined fairly rapidly. Yeah, very um, rapidly around yeah. the middle of uh, the 1800s uh, when, when the Republicans sort of came up in the in the uh, industrial North and uh, and the Whigs also declined in the South due to the Demo Democrats. Uh, you know, uh, hold on the slaveholders uh, kind of ideology. In the 1830s, 1840s, um, the Whigs had had, um, had three presidents. Um, you know, so this this actually four. Um, so this this um, uh, there there's there's precedent to this. I think that often we think of um, there's there's a certain school of thought in the left. It's kind of the if we build it, they will come school. That kind of yeah, just yeah. says. The you field of create, dream school, if you Yeah, will. you know, yeah. you just create your, your green party and we might get 1% this election, but next election we might get four, then we'll get six, then we'll get, you know, whatever. We'll, we'll be competitive. We might win an election. Um, I think that just, I, I don't think that would work in, in our kind of political um, political system. Um, and whenever I say that, people are like, oh, this is American exceptionalism. I'm like, well, we have a very, we have actually, you know, it's not a culturalist argument. Like we actually have like a different political system. I think that, um, that a party will just emerge out of kind of the fracturing of the Democratic Party. I think it's something that we actually have to push though. You know, it's not right, like we right. could, we could just kind of sit back and, and, you know, wait for something to, to happen. Um, I believe in a city like New York, socialists could very well, even with DSA's current strength, 
uh, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that we could be the second party on an independent socialist ballot line in New York City. Um, you know, I think it's very, very doable. Um, the Republicans might, we might have a hard time becoming the second party in like Staten Island because the, the the Republicans, you know, all, all the uh, all the retired cops there might, might make right. it hard. Staten Island after the revolution is going to be like um, like Taiwan or something. <laughs> you know, yeah, they'll be, be holding the, out. They'll be, yeah, bunk, yeah, yeah, they'll yeah, be it'll bunkered be, down with their yeah, weapons yeah. and their rations. Yeah, yeah, Giuliani will be their Shanghai shack and that'll be like Formosa or whatever. Right? Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I mean, this is uh, uh, this is kind of my my vision. Then you know, it doesn't involve transforming or taking over the Democratic Party by any means. But I I, ha- I try to think about strategy and think about the role of socialists and coalition politics and whatnot within like actual social forces that exist. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, I also have obviously like a lot of socialists a rank-and-file-driven critique of the trade union bureaucracy. But, you know, I'd, I'd be lying if I said that that I don't think left renewal in the, the U.S. socialist renewal needs to have a social base, and there's a lot of great, uh, you know, nurses' unions and, and actual forces out there in the labor movement that I think can play a role, you know, in that. Um, so so I think that's kind of, in general, what what how I try to envision strategy and and whatnot, but a lot of it relates to kind of defining this kind of Clinton center as not just a enemy, but I think in many ways, like the, one of the primary enemies, because, you know, we don't really defeat the right by just attacking the right alone. You know, it's like a sword and, and shield thing where we need to actually also attack the center in order to carve out our own kind of identity and, and space and also, you know, just prevent the dominance and hegemony of a, of a type of politics that has only fueled the, the, the far right. And I, I think I think on the left, people veering towards this either either extreme, either this kind of like siloed sectarianism or on the other hand, this kind of pop frontism that says that everyone from from Joe Biden to like Bob Avakian is is like, you know, should be should be uniting and fighting together. I think Biden and Avakian could actually have some beers together and get along. They might be they might be BFFs by the time it uh, you know it's over with. But <laughs> actually, that'd be that'd be a great buddy comedy. That, I could see oh, it. I buddy see comedy it. from oh, that'd be great. I'd watch it for sure several times in the theater. So you're, you're pointing to something that that is really kind of uh, you know it's 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 a little commonplace now. I think as as an attitude amongst a, a, a fairly large segment of the left, but but. You know the the rise of this style of coalition, uh, you know, strategic kind of chess game that that you're advocating here uh, is really something that that you and and your folks at Jacobin really helped inaugurate. Uh, what you know, seven uh, some odd years ago, and so it must feel very gratifying to see the political terrain opening up in this way. Uh, you know, so so many years on. Um, now contrast contrast what you just laid out with the more kind of idealist oppositional poll to the Democratic Party because it seems to me that there's a there's a real difference between what you just laid out and trying to assess the material forces on the ground and trying to to uh, deliberately sort of jump up and down on those fractures to try to get them to widen um, versus kind of the more abstentionist uh, anti-democratic party line. Yeah, I mean, well, I think for one thing, it just the disagreement here 
is about what independent political action means, right? So I actually, I, I do want to create a third poll. I think that's the entire point of, of what we were trying to do with the Bernie Sanders campaign and, and in general, those of us on the left who are, who are canvassing and taking part. We wanted to create a force in American politics that was explicitly, at the very least, social democratic, opposing itself to a neoliberal center and like obviously a really uh, nasty, noxious um, right. And, and I think we, we accomplished that uh, to a large degree because God knows, um, and I say we very generous to include us in it, you know, people like me and you, because uh, Bernie Bernie did most of the work. Sure. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think, you know, as depressing as, let's say, the results of the elections, um, you know, were, um, can you imagine what, you know, mid-November would have looked like, how depressing it would be if there had been no you know, Bernie Sanders, oh my God. Um, yeah. if there had been no, none of that experience, none of that legacy, none of that kind of like aftershock that had just been fucking O'Malley uh, O'Malley supporters going <laughs> against, you know, Clinton, like O'Malley uh, would have won. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, can you imagine that phrase? I mean, yeah. You know, Jesus. Um, so so but I, I do think my difference between me and let's say the Trotsky's left and others is that, you know, when I when I view independent political um, action, you know, I think of it as kind of a goal, something that we push towards, something that we try to enact. But in in other words, I don't think it it means that. Let's say if I'm in a swing state um, and there is a pivotal, you know, kind of um, you know election, and there's a you know a reactionary sessions type Republican, and there's a a, a, a Democrat running against that person, you know. I, I might not canvass for them. I think as a socialist, we shouldn't canvass for, for these candidates. I think we have better things to do than just voter registration and that kind of work. I think we have to think about the work we could do distinctly as socialists, what our value added is, and not just subsume themselves into liberalism. But, you know, I obviously, I would definitely not argue against someone who's going to, you know, make that decision and make that vote. And I myself might personally make that vote. And I think that's perfectly consistent with um, independent political action. Same same question of the, you know, when it comes to the trade union, you know, movement. Like we support rank and file struggles from below, but we question the historic and present role of a lot of the trade union bureaucracy. But you know what? Like there are often cases when you know, given how weak and fragmented the left is, given how weak our you know working class movement is in the U.S., like you know, like right to work and things like that, you know, need to be, you know, opposed, even if in in the abstract, you know, in the abstract, um, the way a lot of unions functions, the U S like is, is, you know, undemocratic. Right. So it's just kind of like, um, taking, um, uh, you know, a bit of, a bit of sobriety, you know, there, but I completely agree that, you know, creating a, a third poll is, is what we're trying to do. And, you know, God, I wish I was in a, a country, that actually had, you know, a party advocating for the interest of, you know, the vast majority of people. It is really incredible. Like, I, I, I don't think you could have imagined in like, the, let's say we're having this discussion um, 150 years ago. I don't think you could have imagined that a stable capitalism could emerge without a party representing the interest of the majority. Yet here we have a, you know, a capitalist democracy that uh, that doesn't have uh, working class political representation. It's it's honestly shows the flexibility of the the system. 
It does. It's quite it's quite remarkable how many folks are disfranchised from you know just the the most. Uh, you know, everyday participation in our so-called representative democracy. So it sounds to me like you're arguing for a more nuanced conception, right? Where where a lot of folks would sort of charge you in particular, like you're you're kind of the popular fall guy on on social media these days. Um, you you don't seem to notice. You're just kind of watching the Knicks and, and Yankees, uh, you know, uh, uh, lose mostly. So that that's that's another great great um, you know great reason why people are pissed at me because I'm a Yankee fan. I'm like. Well, shit, it's an accident in geography. I grew up 15, 20 miles from the stadium. Like, you know. Yeah, I mean, I uh, you, you mentioned off air that you were, you know, going to be keeping tabs on the Yankees game that's going on right now. And uh, I thought, yeah, well, that's that's great. Uh, I, I can stare out my window while I'm doing the interview, too, and watch the grass grow. It'll be kind of like the same thing. Right? Oh, so, come yeah. on, come on. Well, baseball, baseball, it's a, you just got to watch the last three innings. I mean, it's something you have in the background when you're at home, you're doing something else. No, that's not at all what, what what I meant was watching the. It's it's a sure thing that the Yankees are going to be good, you know, consistently oh, from year to year. Oh, that, that's, yeah, yeah. That's what I was getting at. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's I, a little too easy to historically to be a Yankees fan, is what I'm suggesting. Oh, that's all, it's that's all I'm getting. Yeah, at. yeah. Like, let's mean, think about our brothers and sisters who are like Pirates fans out there, or you know, uh, I don't know. The Yankees have been pretty bad recently. Uh, they got some young players now. <laughs> they, they're not even number uh, top two in payroll. I think they're like number three in payroll. Or I just want to center the experience, Beskar. I just want to center the experience of Pirates fans. I think that's really important as we're dealing with baseball oppression. Yeah, I, yeah. Again, um, I'm, 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 uh, I'm again <laughs> insensitive to these these questions as uh, as I constantly hear. So yeah, so you're advocating for this kind of, you know, as as Adolph Reed said last week, you know, the ability to keep two balls in the air at one time, and sort of on the one hand combating electoral fetishism, but using electoralism as a sort of a larger p- tool in our in our broader strategy. Same with our orientation to trade unions, you know, arguing against trade union fetishism, but then at the same time, of course, you know, supporting trade unions even as they exist today as anti-democratic, you know, corporate bodies. Uh, we, you know, they're they're kind of the best thing that we have on offer. So. That's really great. So th- that was a good warm up. Believe it or not, that was completely off script. So we got a nice smattering for 20 minutes. We got a nice smattering every, of everything, all of the debates and, and topics that are out there. So let's, let's go back on script. I brought you on the show. It was a good warm up, but I want to get to the nitty gritty. I brought you on the show because some have referred to you as the great communicator of socialist ideas for our generation. And I think, you know, I think that's true. I'm not just saying that because you're on the line. You have a way of bringing some of these more complex ideas, uh, you know, into the regular everyday vernacular of of American experience. Uh, Whereas, you know, uh, dusty grad students like me tend to get a little too uh, hyper theoretical. So break down for me if you can. Matt Carp recently went on Twitter, as he does in his 140-character pithy statements, and proclaimed the beginning, the possible beginning, of a social democratic century. What do you make of the political moment that we're in right now? And do you think that that's, that's a potentially uh, uh, accurate prognostication? Um, so I, lo- I love Matt Carp. Good friend of mine, that Matt Carp. Um, you know, I, I, think, I, I think, to be honest... Um, well, in many ways, social uh, democracy came about in such a, a particular period, a particular set of background conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, it was dependent on a, a long period of capitalist profitability, uh, growing workers' movements, um, you know, like a whole, a whole host of other background conditions. I think that in a country like the U.S., um, we could definitely mobilize and win, and win more gains as far as the um, – 
the welfare state. You know, I think we could gain. Um, I, honestly, I, I believe we have the potential to, in the next five years, get single payer health care in this country. I honestly believe that as a um, as a horizon, which of course would be the effective decommodification. Um, a single payer obviously wouldn't wouldn't couldn't be the last step because you know there, there's a kind of a cost spiral um, that would that would continue having private hospitals and and private pharmaceutical companies and whatnot. But I think it would put us well onto the road to decommodifying you know one sixth of the the economy in the the U.S. You know, so I, I think I think there are major gains to be made. I think there will be a century of a, at the very least, social democratic coalition. Um, a working class um, constituency of people who demand and expect certain things from the state. Um, I think that's all, um, you know, something that that we can look forward to. Now, the question is, how quickly do we need a transition? How quickly do we need to um, actually take control of capital's ability to withhold investment? You know, how quickly, in other words, do we need to enact our transitional program to go beyond social democracy? I think. Um, or I hesitate to say that we can have social democracy for a um, a century. I think the reforms will either have to be cumulative and will have to move forward enough that we're we're actually going into socialism. We're actually controlling capital's ability to to um, withhold investment. Um, or we're actually pushing for deeper, more radical socializations. Um, or um, you know there will be a rollback. So um, my hunch. Is uh, as pleasant as that sounds, you know. I think uh, we uh, I, I, we can't be in a social democracy for for a century. Right. I think that's right. And I just want to be clear, Matt Carp. Uh, not only is it an incredible intellect, the guy's a uh, you know Ivy League history professor for for God's sakes, but but he also has some really big biceps. And uh, so I just want to be clear. Maybe we're being a little. Maybe I'm being a little unfair to Matt's uh, a proclamation of the social democratic century. I'm sure he has a more nuanced conception that probably aligns with you know with what you just said. Uh, you know, in terms of understanding that 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 social democratic coalition and that synthesis is a very fragile one. And I want to get to that. We're going to get to that later in the show. I have some specific uh, kind of questions and points uh, for you when it comes to the definitions and the history of social. De- yeah, and also one thing is I think we need to create a working class movement that's going to press for demands and whose ultimate aims, or at least the core of it, aims are kind of looking beyond capitalism. But we might fall short of that final aim. But to me, that's different than than embracing social democracy, if that makes sense. So in other words, yeah, yeah, um, sure, sure. like like uh, when we when we look about at, at, at Sweden or something, right, at the Scandinavian model, are we looking at... Um, are we celebrating the triumph of a leadership that said, we're social democrats, we no longer aspire to um, anything more than uh, kind of doses of socialism within capitalism? Or are we celebrating the achievements of a workers' movement that made inroads against capital, right? right so exactly, um, exactly. so that's why I, tr- I tend to avoid um, celebrations of social democracy, even though you know, my minimum program are all social democratic demands and, and, you know, God knows we need, you know, even a little bit of that. I think that's right. I, 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 I try to use a cheap modifier. I call it left social democracy. Or oh no, it's, it's a real tradition. No, it's, right. And I mean, it might be a tradition. cop out, you know, but, but I, you're right to say that like these, you know, we're going to get back, I want to get back to this in more detail later. Uh, but just to sort of hint towards it, like you're absolutely correct to say that 
where we landed isn't necessarily uh, where folks aspired, the full, uh, the fullness of where folks uh, sort of aspired to go. Um, and, and I think, you know, we can, we can have one without necessarily settling for the other, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and also, I think what's key is that we're anti-capitalist, even if we are fighting for reforms within the system. If you don't see that capital is our enemy and not a potential ally, if you don't see that to the extent they'll allow us to get anything within the system, it'll be with with a gun to their head. So in many ways, you know, obviously any form of social democracy is corporatist and it's kind of arrangement. But there's a difference between, you know, the state and capital and labor sitting together in a room and there's and, you know, a hostage crisis, right? A hostage crisis kind of negotiation, too, right? We need to put the gun to capital's head. That's right. There need to be stakes. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, I'm just saying, you know, if you don't do this thing, I'm just saying, you know, maybe you'll find a, a severed horse's head in your bed. You right. Know, exactly. Like that, you know, a uh, little more Godfather, a little less, uh, you know, uh, class snuggle, I think, is what Jan, uh, Jane McAlevey put it on this show. Class struggle <laughs> right. versus class snuggle. So let's let's backtrack. You are clearly the founder of Jacobin Magazine. That's everybody knows that by now. You've sort of given your sh- sort of uh, historical spiel about how that came about, and you know uh, I, I won't sort of drag you through that. But clearly, you know Jacobin is front and center of this of this project in, in many ways, and, and and you guys take a lot of heat for it. Um, you know, haters gonna hate. Uh, but but I think the hate sort of demonstrates the success that you've had. Ask any rapper; uh, they'll tell you in a lot more, uh, in a lot, <laughs> in a much cooler way than I just laid it out for sure. Um, but I think you have a really you have a really nuanced position when it comes to this stuff, and I think a lot of people don't attribute uh, that 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 sense uh, to you enough. And so I'm happy to have you on the show to have you you know sort of spell that out for folks. But one of the projects that you've recently launched into that my loyal listeners will be familiar with is this Catalyst Journal. So tell, tell, tell me a little bit about that and what kind of unique contribution you think that Catalyst can play in laying out these more nuanced, uh, you know, uh, in, more intensely uh, theoretical and historical uh, concepts for the left. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the advantages of, of Catalyst is that it, I think Jackman at its best, for example, even, even Jackman, is a step removed from day-to-day politics, if that makes sense, right? So in other words, we obviously cover whatever the latest stuff going on with Trump, the latest terrible cabinet appointments he has or whatnot. But one of our strengths is we'll also give you, you know, 9,000 words on the fall of, of French socialism in the 1980s, you know? And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like you you don't chase the market. Otherwise, you become like the nation or some other publication, right? You kind of, you you go to, you you kind of create your own audience and you, you think you think about these broader historical questions and enter best for a step removed from politics. I think Catalyst is, is something uh, similar too. It's like, I think there's a tendency now, especially with all these new young people getting getting really engaged with, with socialism to say that, okay, what we need is we need a movement kind of bulletin. And sure, I think we also need that, but now is the time actually for thinking deeply about, about capitalism, thinking deeply about class. And if you're thinking about capitalism, you have to be thinking about the way in which most people relate to capitalism, which is having to, you know, sell their wage labor, right? So that's, that's why we, we talk about, you know, class. So I think all these things are really, are really uh, useful. And, and I think Jacobin, as we evolve, as we get bigger, needs, does need to become um, 
you know, a little bit more varied in that we need to have shorter articles. We need to maybe have more infographics. We need to have a million different things to make us less like a journal disguising itself as a magazine and more like a true magazine uh, to actually have deeper, deeper resonance um, in, a, in American political life. Um, and we're, we're doing pretty well. You know, we have over 40,000, um, you know, uh, our circulations at over 40,000, which is, you know, for a socialist publication, like not not bad. But, uh, but, you know, I think the, the peak is much higher. So as, as we kind of do that, as we try to increase our frequency and to some degree topicality, though we're not going to go in an extreme direction with that, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, um, it's useful to have kind of an intellectual uh, rudder and something there. And also, to be honest, you know, I, I never went to grad school. I'm not a, a fan of, of, you know, academia. It's often my, my, my primary punching, my primary puncher boy is academic, uh, academics, you know, when it comes to like just the way they talk and, you know, explain, um, you know, use, uh, ex- explain bad ideas in the most complicated way possible and so on. Same. I'm a self-hating academic. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But, you know, I think there is there are people that can be saved within academia, right? There are undergraduates, of course, there are young grad students, there are people who have just been exposed and will be exposed potentially to just this like, you know, culturalist uh, mode of analysis. And I think this is our intervention. This is our place to kind of put down the flag for something else, but also in, in a way that that is, you know, explains ideas in good faith. You know, um, uh, like if you read... Vivek Chipper's book, he's, he's often unfairly kind of maligned as being polemical or whatnot. Maybe, maybe he is offhanded interviews and so on, but if you read his scholarly work, he gives you the best faith kind of reading of, let's say, uh, in his latest Catalyst Space Western class from Cultural Turn, which which I put up for free on the Catalyst site if anyone wants, wants to take a look. Um, you know, it's it's a read-through of, of, hey, what did we actually gain for the Cultural Turn? He actually says it's something. Um, but but what are kind of its 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 limits, and what are these thinkers actually saying? And that's that's what I want Catalyst to be to be something that you know is thorough enough that it explains the debate and then offers a perspective, but doesn't give you the the worst version of other people's arguments in order to win arguments. Uh, and I think you know the actual writers involved, Chibber, Mike Davis, you know, there's a, there's a host of people who were. Um, who are capable of writing, you know, at extremely high, high quality. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, in, it's, a uh, so far the second issue just hit the printer will be out soon. Um, third issue is almost done. I, I got a chance to look at a lot of the drafts. I think at the very least, the first five issues are going to be incredible. And then after that, you know, who knows, you know, journals have the tendency to, to get terrible after a while. <laughs> well, let's hope not. Let's hope they carry through and, and only improve. I think, you know, Chibber's uh, rationale sort of, you know, matches up with your own, uh, Vivek being one of the uh, editors, uh, is that, you know, there's a sort of um, political common sense that circulates in, in, in the more uh, sort of the Jacobin style pieces or the hot takes that sort of come up around it. And we don't really question the or interrogate the assumptions uh, that, that sort of foreground a lot of those more everyday observations. And, and I think Catalyst is a way to do that. You know, I, you know, a perfect example, you know, I, I punch on grad students as much as anybody. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I look at the, one of my topics from last week was the resolution in, in DSA's convention for an Afro-socialist and socialist of color caucus. And, you know, on the first page of the rationale for that, you know, they quote, uh, Stuart Hall, <laughs> who said race is one modality through which class is lived. 
And so, you know, Stuart Hall is this sort of dusty uh, cultural studies, you know, uh, a race and, you know, uh, class theorist, you know, from the 19, you know, 80s and 90s. Um, Not many. He doesn't have a wide, you know, uh, audience on the on the broad socialist left. But yet here is here are his ideas being reflected in a very concrete proposal. And you know the largest socialist organization, and also just and also just taken out of uh, context too. That's I mean, right. Like, That's I, right. I, 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 mean, I wasn't going to say it, but yeah, no, but nobody actually reads Stuart Hall. Uh, um, they just they just quote him. They use him. I mean, it, it's it's also the this bizarre thing too. I mean, just with like random quotations of like figures that, let's say, someone like Maurice Bishop, someone who I you know greatly respect and known about for for a long time, partially because you know my family's Trinidadian, so from the Anglophone Caribbean. Um, Grenada is right, right, you know, right next door. Um, and you know, someone like Maurice Bishop, by people who know nothing of the history of Grenada, know nothing of the, the you know, uh, the New Jewel movement, you know, any anything like that, um, like we'll just kind of quote him and, and say that you know we need to uh, kind of also exaggerate his theoretical contributions to Marxism. Um, and often I find like white socialists doing this, not because they want to seriously engage with the ideas or context of these people, but because they want to like tokenistically, like, um, you know, say that, uh, you know, here's all these forgotten, forgotten Marxists that are just as important as Lenin. Meanwhile, like none of them, like no one in the new jewel movement would, um, would, would say that. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think there is this weird way in which, um, like, thinkers aren't taken seriously on their own terms. They're just kind of quoted to serve like very, uh, very narrow, narrow ends. It's almost like a signaling kind of thing. It really is. And you see that in academia as much as you do in, in the political world. But, you know, the point point being, it's exciting to see that the Catalyst Journal is out there to try to investigate some of these commonsensical assumptions. You know, Nevada Damajimdar's essay on uh, post-colonial theory, I had her on the show uh, some weeks yeah. ago. It, you know, it, it serves that role. I, I have seen uh, Gayatri Spivak come up and the subaltern and can the subaltern speak i have seen a really kind of uh you know as you say a very basic conception of that come up in the context of organizing meetings yeah these these people are are really are really uh are really crazy to a lot of them like like i was that she had that reply to chipper a couple of years ago where she she wrote it entirely in like the third person I'm yeah. not sure if you ever saw this, but, but it, is, it is it is great. Um, and I once did an event in, in, in Europe, um, and um, the same day that I did the event, the speaker right after me was uh, Vandana uh, Shiva. Yeah, yeah. And um, the, like, uh, a stressed-out organizer was complaining afterwards. She's like, you know, I don't know what to do. You know, she flew first class, and she had a stopover in Germany, so, like, we're way over budget. And then I'm like, I knew the... It just, like, I, I just started laughing because, like, I just I just loved... I just loved it. Meanwhile, like, Noam Chomsky is, like, you know, God knows how old and still flying coach. Yeah, Chomsky's flying coach, and Vendata Shiva he has yeah, caviar yeah, yeah. in first class. And while, 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 while landing somewhere and telling people, like, you know, grow their own seeds and shit. Like, I don't know. <laughs> grow their own seeds. You know, I, I obviously am not an ecological expert. I, I will admit it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the bottom line is I'm, I'm happy. I've had three guests on who, who were featured in the first volume of uh, Catalyst. So you can, you, you can be sure that this show is going to continue uh, to host the authors and Catalyst and, and try to push that project. And, and uh, I, it, I, I didn't actually know that. I didn't actually know yeah. that. I, I have no yeah, idea why yeah, I'm yeah. on that. I feel like I've already saturated 
appreciated. We, we got what we could from you already. Uh, the thing is, like, I owe you basically, uh, you know, 90% of the success for my show because I wouldn't have any guests if it wasn't for Jacobin. Uh, All right. That's, uh, that's my dirty little secret. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I had on uh, Vivek and uh, Nevada, and then, of course, Cedric Johnson uh, talking about his piece uh, from from uh, Catalyst. So much more of that to come. My audience, who who a lot of grad students, but many who are, who are not, uh, you know, really, really positive response. You know, even though those are in some senses like very theoretical and intensely historical and specialized, uh, they 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 resonate with a broad audience. You know, you know, and they resonate with the kind of political experiences uh, and demands that they're facing. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's exactly what we 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 need to not shy away from these even theoretical arguments. We just need to figure out a way to ask ourselves. When are we writing something complexly because the idea is complex enough that it actually demands, say, specialized language and so on, which is sometimes the case. Um, and when we're just doing it just just because, like, you know, 80, 90 percent of the time, maybe more, the people are using like words like lived experience. They could just use experience. Right. They just want to <laughs> let you know that they read E.P. Thompson. Yep. You know, I'm like, yep. we all have. But, you know, you know what I mean? That, it's like it's is. Yeah. Anyway. A, lot of, a lot of signaling for status. So let's exactly. let's move let's move on from that. That's one of my big uh, you know uh, things on the show. So I wanted to give that a lot of attention coming from you, the publisher, uh, the big get the big picture per- perspective there. But let's get to the nitty gritty because we're talking about social democracy. We got off track a little bit there, but we're talking about social democracy, left social democracy, uh, both abroad and in the United States. So recently, one of the more controversial statements that you and others have made, <laughs> others have attributed to you is claiming that the quote-unquote Scandinavian model is the sort of extreme horizon of the quote-unquote Jacobin left or the social democratic left of which you are uh, sort of, uh, you know, at the helm of or, or whatever. So sort of break, break down that fallacy for us. Tell us, tell us what the quote-unquote Scandinavian model is, how it originated, and, and maybe what the reality yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I think the bottom line is that so obviously the Scandinavian model is is a society in which, you know, more spheres of life than your average capitalist democracy are are um, decommodified, right, are taken out of the market and enjoyed by people as social rights. You have um, a large, a larger array of this kind of state involvement in the provision of these services. And you have a, a corporatist um, arrangement between state capital and labor which kind of guaranteed like a degree of social peace. In other words, like uh, at a certain point, it was like um, we have so much power that we're going to sit down and we're going to negotiate a very good deal. And in return, we respect the management's right to govern, to, mm-hmm. to manage. Mm-hmm. And, it, and we're not going to just like put up a fight at the soft floor at every single possible moment. But this was kind of the institutionalization of what had been very, you know, fractitious um, and, you know, really, really, um, you know, bloody at times uh, class struggle in these countries. So um, the Norwegian Labor Party, for instance, was a was a labor party that um, was actually affiliated for the first few years to the Comintern, to the Third International that supported the Bolshevik Revolution. And that's a dominant center left party in in Norway, uh, you know, in Sweden, you had, um, you know, a quite, you know, radical, um, uh, you know, SPD and workers movement at, at, at times, uh, sorry, SAP. Um, so, you know, so what people, um, you know, it, it was an interesting model. It, it reflected, most importantly, the strength of a workers movement that was unable to, especially in small 
not very you know populated countries, uh, not break free of capitalism, uh, but still achieve you know the, the highest doses of humanity you know imaginable within um, a capitalist system. So of course, as socialists, we say it didn't go far enough. We need to imagine going beyond social democracy, not just because not not completely taking away the the ability of, of capital to control investment lends itself to rollbacks, which obviously is happening there. But also because at a moral and ethical level, you know, we oppose the exploitation of person by person, right? We oppose something about capitalism, its structure, its lack of democracy, um, all these kind of broader features, the division of the of, of society into classes, you know, exploiting and exploited classes, like all these features, um, uh, the division of the world into competing, you know, countries that have standing armies and so on. All you know, you can keep going, but like we 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 oppose these things, but. We also kind of see um, the achievements of the Scandinavian welfare state as not kind of some sort of way for the ruling class to fool workers into accepting capitalism, but rather the victories of um, generations of class struggle itself. Um, so even even when it comes to people basically associating very glibly um, uh, things like racism uh, with the Scandinavian model, um, there's a reason why, you know, um, like crazy far right, uh, you know, people, um, in, in, uh, in Scandinavia literally gun down, um, you know, social Democrats, you know, they, they right. do so because they know that when social democracy is weak, when the movement is on the defensive, when it's, it's gains are being rolled back, that opens up space for the far right. So, you know, the real alternative in these countries is between this kind of, uh, broadly left communitarian, you know, vision of, of of society, which also is coupled, by the way, with quite liberal immigration policies, and on the other hand, this kind of far right hyper capitalist, you know, kind of vision that's that's also tied with exclusionary, um, you know, policies as it relates to kind of uh, ethno nationalist immigration policies and so on. So the idea that oh, just because Scandinavia isn't perfect. Um, uh, you know, it's it's you know kind of a cesspool of capitalist reaction and racism is kind of like ahistorical and and you know kind of um, you know really it really is um, you know ridiculous. Right, that's that's one of the one of the main fallacies that keep coming up that appears on almost every show that I have is this the the fallacy which is it's an argument by analogy. Right. And so it's it, rather than taking the more concrete historical, you know, so specificity of, of each particular nation in, in context, you know, into play, they sort of just kind of say, well, this this thing happened over there and they call it the same thing. There's, so this thing over here is called the same thing is going to sort of play out that way or whatever. Right. Like it's just, it's a it's a really sloppy way of doing historical and political analysis. And I think, you know, we need to do much better. Um, and I, I, that's what, that's what, what my show is, is really trying to contribute to in, in many ways. So let's talk, you know, I always but, say, but, this, but, you know? but also, I mean, there's, there's a left wing, I was just going to say, there's a left wing variant of the Hillary Clinton thing. There's a left wing variant of like, Oh, taking on wall street won't solve, you know, this, right. Like, and like yeah, yeah, that yeah. logic is just so, is so self evidently dumb. It shouldn't, it shouldn't bear any repeating. Of course, solving one problem will not necessarily solve another problem. Like what, like what, what, what is your criteria for doing anything? Be like, right, right. you know, like, like I'm hungry and I need to take a shit. Like taking a shit will not, will not solve my hunger. Therefore, you know, it's just like, it's just, it's just like self-evidently like, and I think everybody who makes those arguments knows it's stupid. I think it just like, 
it's it's just a certain neuroses of a subculture and unfortunately that's what part of the left you know uh, much of the left right is the only difference is some of us see the need to break out of the subculture and some of us just want to you know um, you know embrace it or, or monetize it or whatever right refine their position uh, in, in that their status you know within that subculture right right very well put. So, you know, I think, you know, we, we, we talked a lot in the last several days on left book and social media about the Scandinavian model and what it is and what it isn't. Um, uh, Ronan Burtonshaw, who is your Europe editor, European politics editor. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, he's just a drunk Irishman who hangs yeah. around us, but yeah. Hey, you guys tolerate him, but he says some he's some pretty smart shit every once in a while. <laughs> moments, moments of clarity. Yeah, yeah through through the uh, through the uh, you know, the beer buzzes. So he writes on on Facebook. I thought this was really good, really pithy, and then we'll move on from this. Um, he says, you know, the Scandinavian model wasn't even the upper limit of the socialist a- imagination for the labor parties that built it, which is kind of what we've been laying out. All of them aspired to go beyond it, and many carved out paths to do just that. For instance, Sweden with the the, the Meidner plan. I'm not going to try to I'm not going to try to pronounce that Swedish word. The uh, all of my uh, Scandinavian uh, listeners will make fun of me relentlessly. Um, so he writes. Uh, let's see. The Scandian the Scandinavian model is not really a model. It's a residue of a century of struggle by class conscious political movements, one that is un- insufficient and in retreat. But its achievements represent a star far off in the distance for socialist movements in advanced capitalist countries who might have had imagination, but have never had strategies robust enough to approach them. I think that's, you know, that, that's a mic. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's 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 excellent. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the one uh, and, and Ronan, of course, is a, you know, a, a brilliant you know, writer and editor. Um, he does a lot of our, our European uh, uh, coverage. Um, now, like, I think the one place where I would disagree is that. For a segment of the social democratic movement, the uh, the Scandinavian model was a model. In other words, uh-huh. Olaf Palma and um, certain certain segments of the SAP and these other these other formations um, actually actively undermined a left wing resolution to the uh, capitalist crisis in the seventies. In other words, there were people on the left calling for certain forms of, of more socialization in order to solve the crisis of capitalism. And there were others that did eventually pave the way to retreat in order to solve the crisis. Everyone knew the status quo couldn't continue. The question was, who was strong enough to actually win the, um, win the transition? So that's my only kind of you know, nitpick. But I think in general, for the vast majority of the, the workers, um, and this, you know, like the the vote counts that these parties got are absolutely staggering. You know, they they dominated, uh, you know, politics in these countries for for a long time. Um, you know, their their aspiration they didn't really see it as a model. They just saw it as demanding more and more dignity and more and more kind of uh, you know happiness and security for themselves. And and the, for currents on the left, which are not insignificant, um, you know, within social democracy, they of course saw that something had to give and, and they, they thought there was a pathway out of the crisis that, that essentially would have put us in, you know, created a socialist um, society out of social democracy. And that's, that's, you know, that's one of the things I think a lot of people who write for, for Jacobin um, support and, and our editors certainly support, which is kind of like this social democratic road to communism. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously people can, 
can cherry pick coverage or ideas or, or whatnot, or for those of us that, that support these immediate social democratic demands, say, no, this is this is your vision. You know, this is where you want it to end. Like a bunch of, you know, racist, you know, kind of white people eating, you know, preserved fish or whatever the fuck they do there, you know? <laughs> that That is, yeah, very well said. And that, that really excellently prefigures where I wanted to go next, because you don't have to look at the Scandinavian model in this very sort of strange social democratic political climate that, you know, doesn't really reflect uh, history in the United States. You can just look at the U.S. in the 1970s. Uh, we had a very, you know, we suffered the kind of uh, global political um, turbulence that you pointed to that they had to adjust to in various ways in Sweden. You know, we had to face that in, in the U.S. and in, in many ways more profoundly so because we were in, in many senses in the driver's seat of a lot of those, uh, you know, that that global ter- turbulence when it comes to, you know, uh, going off the gold standard in the 60s and and adjusting to uh, stagflation and, and deindustrialization and, and all types of these other these types of things adolf reed on the show yesterday you know a 50-year history on the socialist left he, he shared a really interesting anecdote with me that i loved and he said as soon as we got as soon as i got used to the 70s the 1970s they were gone which really kind of it, it paints an excellent picture of how the left kind of failed to recognize and respond effectively in that moment because he said, you know, he mentioned that while we we spent all of our time criticizing uh, the inadequacy of the welfare state in the 1970s, and what we didn't realize is that would be ripped out from underneath of us in the 1980s. Right. Uh, it seemed like a temporary depression. It actually seemed like the 80s might be the era of fight back, right? Even in the early Reagan administration of extremely unpopular president, you have you know, burgeoning solidarity movements in uh, Central America. You have kind of a, a left that's 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 growing on campuses, fighting apartheid, doing all sorts of great campaigns. You know, it's it's in hindsight, it's easy just to see you know a decade and a half of reaction. Um, but when you're when you're there, you know, I think people people are really you know. And then in Europe, right? And then you have the Basoque government, and in France, governments coming in. Um, and Mitterrand explicitly saying that he didn't want to legislate. He didn't want to govern within capitalism. He wants to transcend capitalism, right? He wanted to be the, the first socialist, you know, um, uh, leader. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's easy. It's easy in hindsight to to see decades of, of reaction when, in fact, you know, when people living there actually thought that, that you know, left advance might just be on the horizon. I think we really have to study this moment because there's a, there are a lot of uh, things going on there and there, there's some different interpretations. I'm sure if Bob Brenner was on the line right now, he would quarrel with what I'm about to say. He has a different view of things. But I'm, a, I'm kind of a, I'm a proponent of what, what, what might be called the profit squeeze model, um, among others, right? Among other factors in the 1970s, which is to say that labor was able to, uh, because of relatively full employment, was able to accomplish uh, a significant wage pressure. Um, and because they had given up in the 1950s and 60s through the so-called, like, say, Fordist Accord is one way to look at it, I think, in a wrong-headed way. But in a sense, the, the, the national trade unions had given up control of the labor process and the production process itself. They, they'd ceded that to management in order to uh, have continued wage and benefit increases throughout the year, you know, and th- to keep pace with uh, productivity and so on and so forth. So in the 1970s, uh, you know, labor was pushing for wage gains um, in the face of deindustrialization and global economic crisis that they were unable to keep up with. Um, and because they had ceded control of the production process, uh, they didn't have the levers 
in the political economic system to push forward. And just like, you know, as Mitterrand said, to, to, to achieve a socialist kind of uh, economic arrangement with uh, outside of capitalism, which would have involved, you know, robust capital controls, um, really intense uh, socialization of the production process, national planning, you know, things that sound insane to us now. Uh, but those were never really on the table. Do you agree with that kind of assessment? Does that sound right to you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that you know I I, I might be uh, a bit too much of a, a slightly un, unreconstructed trot uh, that I would say that you know part of part of this was also um, you know having a movement that actually said that you know the goal was to overcome capital and this might be necessary to do it. You know, um, uh, so so I mean I, I do think that probably the vehicles of the the French. Socialist Party or the vehicles of your communism were probably insufficient um, to do that. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think broadly, um, you know, there was a chance or a moment conceivably to to push further um, left and we just didn't have the social forces to do it. That's why I'm kind of wary of some of the like almost shock doctrine like approaches that basically see um, like Milton Friedman and the Chicago School as like, a bunch of wizards that enacted this kind of plan. And, you know, I, I think there could have been neoliberalism. History would have went exactly the same as it went, even if the Chicago school never, never existed. Partially because, you know, capitalists weren't trying at, let's say the firm level. Um, they, they're not trying to enact neoliberalism. What they're trying to do is they're trying to respond to the market and they say, all right, our profitability is declining. What do we do? We don't know what to do, but we know we need flexibility to do it, right? right exactly. So we know we exactly. need to make um, inroads against um, against labor. We know we have to have the flexibility to be able to lay off people to restructure our production or whatnot. You know, it's not a kind of a a, a, a you know evil plot or something. It's just them responding to market you know imperatives, um, and that's all the ideological cohesion they really need. It's a lot harder uh, for us to convince people not just of the bread and butter trade union um, issues, not just of, you know, fighting for more respect and dignity, but going to the next level and saying, here's why we need to go beyond capitalism. I think that is a more difficult task than you know, the, either the day to day kind of uh, reform struggles or on the other hand, um, you know, uh, capitalist grading cohesion with each other. I think that's right. And you look at a lot of the primary, just from the governmental level, a lot of the initial, what we call neoliberal reforms, they happened under a democratic president, Jimmy Carter. And, you know, a lot of, I think, I think one of the narratives that ran in Jacobin, uh, sort of, uh, says, well, see, that shows that the Democrats were neoliberals all along. And I think, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, come on, you know, I think, uh, focusing too much on one's ideological orientation or, or speculating about one's true intentions or what what's in what's in somebody's heart, like say we did with uh, Greek uh, Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras, uh, you know, see he was always a traitor. He he never really believed in this stuff. You know, it's kind of like uh, it's a yeah cop yeah it, it's dumb it's dumb. Um, it's, a, it's a cop out, but it also doesn't tell us about the, about what happened. But but also it's just it's pure propaganda right and there's a place for propaganda right there's a place for saying at least as it relates to um well i mean i think let's say in the greek situation it was a combination of two things right there was a lack they were in a structural position where there was very little i think they could have done but also there was a lack of um a lack of uh resolve um and i think 
I think there was a mixture of the two. So in other words, you know, when it comes to Syriza, I would say that, sure, I understand the conditions you're under. I understand why, why you think, or maybe perhaps even a break with the Eurozone was not feasible. But also, why govern if you can't carry out your program? If you lost your mandate, if, if you were elected on a, a, a program that was anti-austerity and so on, and because of these broader objective conditions, um, you cannot govern on your program, and in fact, you're enforcing austerity, why not just leave power and become an opposition movement again? Like, ah, that's that's kind of my, sure. my main question. So I think there's a justification for Syriza staying in power, and that's an old like kind of Leon Blum, uh, the, the first uh, French... Um, uh, head of state that was a socialist in the, the 30s, uh, he de- used to say that he is in a power uh, to occupy power. So in other words, because the far right, because fascism was such a threat at the time, even though he can't go- carry out his program, he thought, and the, the, the French popular front government did basically nothing until they were pressured from below for, for workers to get those, that vo- those vacation reforms and so on that people talk about. And other reforms of the administration were uh, not initiatives of the government. They were initiatives mm-hmm. of the, the broader labor movement. So his, his logic was, you know, I'm occupying power just because if I'm not in power, then the right will come to power and the right will make it even harder for the left to govern and do good things in the future. Uh, I think that's an argument, but I think it stands up a little bit less when the alternative is realistically not Golden Dawn anymore, but it's, uh, you know, new democracy or the return to some sort of Pasoke-like centrist formation. Right. I think that's right. I mean, the key is that there are contradictions on both sides. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think what you were saying, the, the moralism, I think, of the, a lot of the left, I think, is a big is a big problem. And I think you're, you're completely identified, right? It happened with the Syriza debate. It even, to some degree, happens with how we interpret um, and we write about um, uh, Democrats, right? Um, uh, it's kind of a, a, a morality narratives. Um, and, you know, I, I sometimes edit those pieces as it relates to the Democrats, for example. Um, and I think we just need to separate what's prop, broader propaganda and what's actually good, good analysis. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, you know, like I said, uh, I think typically Jacobin is on point in terms of trying to, uh, uh, you know, uh, push forward a, a more sophisticated analysis and resist moralism for the most part. Um, it's a really important project that you're contributing to. Let's uh, we've got to wrap this up here soon. Uh, I do want to talk about your analysis of the realignment struggle inside of the Democratic Party in the 1960s and 70s. Um, that is a really divisive issue on the socialist left. Um, you are oftentimes attributed to one particular side of that debate, which is, you know, oddly enough, the the kind of let's let's all go into the Democratic Party uh, kind of line. Maybe that's that your sort of herring, your Harringtonian legacy that 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 you know folks are uh, you know uh, abstracting from. I don't know. But what's your take on the realignment movement in the Democratic Party in the 1960s? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it's for for one thing, I think they were successful in many ways, right? Um, they successfully um, uh, kicked out the Dixiecrats. They successfully cohered a new coalition within the party. Um, could they have changed the Democratic Party, a capitalist party, into uh, a labor-based party? At the time, I mean. I, I think my, my, my training is to say, no, they couldn't have, right? Um, but I'm not convinced of um, 
that we've actually explained why structurally, uh, especially if the party was in flux and the most reactionary elements were kicked off and labor was growing in power, why labor couldn't wrestle kind of control using its membership and financial leverage and whatnot and constitutionally fundamentally change the structure of the Democratic Party. It would have been a very difficult fight, but it seems to me unlikely but possible. I think the main problem that, that people like Rustin and others that were attempting to do this, like great, great leaders and, and strategists, um, uh, was the fact that, um, you know, they were at a moment when, um, you know, the the, pe the peak of, of, of the welfare state in the U.S. and was in the late 60s, early 70s, right? By the time the structural crisis of the 70s hit, uh, you go from having a tremendous moment of wildcat strikes and activities and whatnot in 72, 73 to a year later having, um, having you know, nothing, right? right, right. So um, I, think, I think a lot of it might have been timing. I would say that a lot of the proponents of the realignment strategy, Rustin, Shackman's of the world, and so on, during that time, there's, there's multiple attempts at realignment. I'm talking about the last kind of attempt. They also got some key issues wrong as it relates to how to relate to the new left social movements, um, how to relate to the movement against the Vietnam War, um, like a lot of these other kind of um, things. But when I read back Michael Harrington, with hindsight, of course, I say, and I often say within DSA, I'm often a, uh, an, in opposition to this realignment strategy because I don't think it makes any sense today is in our context. But knowing what they knew at the time, like, were they really that wrong? You know what I mean? Like, were they were they pursuing the wrong strategy? And also, was there actually a, a different strategy that was that was bearing fruits? Like, was late SDS with its kind of turn towards kind of Maoism and ultra leftism? Were they offering like a real alternative strategy to help American workers? Um, uh, yeah, I th so I think. And when it comes to people like Harrington, of course, like Harrington, um, you know, broke with um, with Rustin and others uh, and the Socialist Party over over the war, which he um, he opposed. Um, but um, but yeah, so I mean, I think today, as it relates to today, I, I support what Bernie Kratz are doing within the party. I support them building and consolidating um, a base. I think as socialists, we should. Uh, be very wary of um, running within the Democratic Party. As socialists, we should not be very invested in kind of uh, Democratic um, um, DNC kind of leadership shakeups and 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 so on. But you know, the goal of of Rustin and others was to try to build a mass base for working class politics in the U.S. and and I, I find I, I find it hard to just you know um, condemn them or say dismiss them out of hand, especially from those of us further further left, uh, so-called, you know, like we haven't actually proposed or built any sort of alternative, right? There's a million different sectarian organizations in the U.S. They haven't done done anything. And even today, an organization like DSA, which has 25,000 people, um, you know, could potentially uh, just amount to, you know, basically nothing other than, you know, just being a large sect or a large subculture. Right. I think that's right. You're pointing to the kind of left wing, what I call left wing quarterbacking that goes on that sort of just looks at the outcome devoid of context in the 1970s. So, for example, you know, there's a tragic scenario, I think, here where you, as you argue, the material basis that would be required for turning the Democratic Party into a more principled left social Democratic Party sort of crumbled out from underneath of their feet. 
in the 1970s. And uh, because there are certain uh, economic conditions of capitalism that are of abundance and, and, and full employment and, and, uh, you know, that are required in order for that to happen. And, and that's, that's one of the most difficult things for socialists and, and Marxists in particular uh, to, to account for is that the conditions of our success are in very many ways controlled by the dynamics of capital accumulation. And then that's one thing that we have no direct control over, given the kind of alignments that, that exist today. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and and there's an attempt to just basically, you know, kind of say propaganda and the activity of small little left groups can change objective conditions. I think we need to do what we can to organize workers and to push forward a viable working class politics in the conditions that we are we are in. Um, and, you know, I think at a certain level, um, maintain this kind of almost like a might sound excessively propagandistic but i think it's very important that we maintain a kind of moral and ethical critique of capitalism and a vision of a world beyond capitalism um and plausibly figure out what forces today can we use to get us on that kind of uh path but you know i over my years on the left i feel like there was points in my life when i've been more confident of one particular strategy or one particular set of ideas but you know i think we're we're at a point where no one should be very uh you know confident about what they what they think beyond those kind of broad basic premises we need we need tactical kind of flexibility and you know god knows um you know like i used to say that you know hey i I want bernard to run but i'm not sure you should run as a democrat right Uh, i think i'm just as far left as 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 ever when i say that you know hey i think he actually accomplished a lot more because he ran as a democrat in this instance the question is whether we should make that into a long-term strategy and why whether we need to take all these thousands of new socialists and tell them to run for like, you know, uh, city mayors and city council and that kind of stuff, as opposed to doing kind of um, deeper work connected to worker centers, connecting to big national campaigns like for Medicare for all or whatnot, you know, things where there's there's a clear value added to being a socialist. Right. You're, you're, once again, we, we're getting back to the ability to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? Being able to right. advocate for one thing, but not not allow that to define your program and your strategies. So let's get down to, it seems there's a more deeper structural problem here, that, that and it's not Jacobin's fault, is that Jacobin suffers from being kind of like the center of a kind of unipolar left media empire <laughs> right yeah i mean yeah I'm i mean just, we get a lot it's of, kind of yeah. like you want that you've worked for that you've built it right yeah, but the only thing worse than getting attacked is getting ignored right <laughs> if we had if we had other outlets that had the same circulation uh the same kind of organization the same coherence as jacobin there could be some 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 good-natured competition and maybe you know uh, other segments of the left could be better represented or at least to their to their liking yeah yeah of course um, of course so so it seems to me like the left really should aspire to 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 reproducing what you all have been able to accomplish over there at jacobin to have a more well-rounded kind of debate and it's unfair to expect jacobin to accommodate itself uh, and perhaps in the way that folks expect it to. That, that, that's my line. That's why I'm always, I always defend Jackman. At the end of the day, I mean, it's like blaming Chuck Berry for the deformation in rock and roll when the Beatles came around. It's like, motherfucker, Chuck Berry invented rock and roll. You know what I mean? That's, that's my line on Jacobin. At the end of the day, like, yeah, you can criticize him, but they invented it. 
You know, I like that's being a little too <laughs> yeah, charitable, yeah, that, right? That, and you that, know that, that's that's, true. that's that's too that's too charitable. But 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 you know what I'm saying though, right? You you created uh, the and put together a coalition and established a certain kind of culture. You you produced a common language and a common terminology and framework uh, throughout the country among millennials and and boomers and otherwise and Gen, Gen Xers. And so you know, criticize you can criticize uh, you know the the creator of the game. But never forget that they're in many senses uh, still still the the, the creator. I think. That that is that is very very too generous. But but yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that part of it though is that there is also an objective basis to our success, right? Like we're able to communicate these ideas better to your average kind of millennial Bernie supporter, uh, like socialist ideas, and bring them uh, left and other other outlets. I do not think that. Either, either you're going to be to the right of us and you're going to end up where in these times or the nation is or and and not differentiate yourself enough and not offer something unique enough as far as a, a vision of perspective, you know, a socialist vision of perspective. Or I, th- I think people are, are, you know, there's something deeply unattractive to the the style and rhetoric within kind of the left, um, the left bubble. You know, there's, there's something like... I think that's going to be deeply alienating to people. That's going to prevent them from becoming, from gaining a mass, a mass audience. I think, you know, competition and, and more people, you know, and um, doing di- different things and organizing different things is, is, is great. But I think, you know, that there has to be a limit to, um, to tense. So, you know, Jackman itself, I think will, you know, remain a large voice of the, the American left. I think people should be very happy because, you know, if you think about where, like venues like the nation or even dissent, right? So dissent had half their editors support the Iraq war, right? So it's like, if we're the replacement, we're the much larger replacement for that kind of thinking. And, you know, here's where we are politically. I think of it as like, you know, uh, you know obviously an, an achievement and, you know, that, but, uh, you know, so that's, you know, that is, is what it is, but overall it kind of, it does please me that, to, that Jacobin is, is kind of, um, you know, at times a lightning rod, but more importantly, that it's like, uh, you know, pushing, pushing debates. And that's also why people feel that the stakes are high to, to criticize coverage or they disagree with us because they think, well, you know, they rightly think we're going to influence like a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people in our thinking for us, that's a responsibility, but at some level, um, you need to have a firm will to not just kind of go along with the, um, the, the crowd. So for example, even within DSA stuff, I think a lot of this, um, a lot of these debates often uh, turn out to be kind of a, a popularity uh, context where you know some people don't um, don't have the resolve to be a minority and to argue their positions and to try to win over um, people. Um, but the, the thing is, if you just sound like everyone else, if you're saying the same thing, then you know um, I don't get the added value of, of kind of <laughs> writing and putting out putting out things. So um, I'm, I'm glad to not. Well, I'm glad I'm glad to be uh, a brown person. First of all, I must say because uh, you know I, I are you I, though? I, do, are you, you know, though? Do people I, allow I, that? I, I am. I, yeah, I, I'm really. I'm really glad because have you I been think, whitened like uh, Assad Hyder has been whitened? Uh, right. You know? I, I I think with a couple more doses of white guilt, my my politics <laughs> might be um, in, uh, unrecognizable. Well said. So that was good. You know, I, I'm, I'm, we're going on an hour and a half. I think that's long enough. You're a super busy guy. I'm sure you're going to be working through the weekend as you as you watch the. Uh, I'm in the office off right the now. Yeah. Yeah, man. You never. St- a lot of people never stop posting. 
uh, best Garson car never stops working. So uh, I'm going to let you get back to that. You know, I, I, I planned on talking a little bit about definitions of socialism, whether or not you're actually a Marxist. There's a whole segment of the internet uh, Marxist left who's pretty damn sure that you're not a real Marxist. But oh, I think God. you just laid out the argument as to why that really doesn't matter at all. And, you know, as I say, this is kind of my litmus test or, or my, I don't know, my, my, my formal stance on Jacobin. If you don't believe, you can have your quarrels with Jacobin. Great. But if you don't believe that the left is far and away materially better off with Jacobin in it compared to if Jacobin had never existed, then I don't want to talk to you <laughs> because because you are so divorced from the material material and institutional reality of our fight for socialism that you know that you're you're really uh, insignificant to me to be honest. I mean, is that is that fair? Does that sound right to you? <laughs> I, I think there's there's dozens of, of great rap songs about about. Uh, about haters, <laughs> um, I, I, you know. So maybe you could close out with one of them. Anything yes. but that 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 uh, the hate me now because Puffy, you know, no song with Puffy on it can be can be good unless Biggie's also on it. So in talking about haters, you're gonna hate on Puffy. That's kind of we're, but, we're getting but, a little but, meta here. But 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 also but also you know I am in many ways the Puffy of Jackman because you know I don't do a lot of the writing or whatever. I just like whenever like Connor's writing something or someone else, I'm just in the background going like yeah yeah, yeah get it yeah what, what yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> doing your dance in your puff jacket in right. the background exactly you know, doing the puffy exactly. dance. Exactly. It's kind of like half a jumping jack, isn't that what the puffy <laughs> dance is? Like the lower part of a jumping jack. You know, things things are getting so bad. It's like we're, we feel nostalgic for like late '60s social democracy, and we also feel nostalgic for the, the bling bling era. That's how bad music has gotten. Yes. Yeah. 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 One hundred percent. Well, hey, haters gonna hate. You keep doing your thing, uh, Baskar. Thanks for coming on the show, man. I've really enjoyed it. I think our listeners are gonna like uh, the kind of uh, politics that you laid out for us. All right, thanks for having me. Take care. Best of luck with the show. Uh, I'll even uh, I'll even toss you uh, you know ten dollars a month or whatever. I just don't want to do it right away. I might be too suspicious. <laughs> right. We don't want any accusations going f- flying around of like corruption at the highest uh, levels of Jacobin and Dead Punnett Society. So yeah, All right, man. later, man. I appreciate that. Take care. And that is the free version of this week's Dead Punnett Society podcast. If you want to hear 20 more minutes of Baskar getting into some of the debates around Syria and the articles that have appeared in Jacobin Magazine, head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and you'll hear that and much more. I've got a lot of really great exclusive subscriber-only content. You're not going to want to miss it. So check that out on patreon.com slash deadpundits. Check me on Twitter, at Dead Pundits, on Facebook. Find my Facebook page, like it, follow it. Got a lot of great guests coming up. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, thanks for your support, everybody. Tell your friends. Share me on social media. And I already led the show with a little bit of Nas. You can hate me now. Uh, and and I just can't, I can't bring myself to uh, lay down some puffy uh, to end the show. Uh, so, you know, I thought like I would go with some Taylor Swift uh, because she's the, she's the person that everybody loves to hate, myself included. But then I was kind of afraid that she might sue the shit out of me uh, because she seems to be petty and greedy as fuck, uh, to be honest with you. So I chose a cover of her Haters Gonna Hate song. Uh, this is Ryan Adams with Shake It Off. Enjoy. 
Shake it all, shake 